You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, we left off at the end of verse 11, moving on into verse 12. And the thought that really comes to my mind, because here we are in this section where the love and interest between Solomon and this young woman is growing. And in this courtship period of time, their love for one another is deepening. And I think the thought in my mind is simply that I know that we're a culture that loves to hear about love at first sight stories. But what you see here is something that is very powerful because it is growing and surging type and quality of love. And it's a beautiful thing to watch and to observe. Now we're going to go today all the way through chapter 2 verse 7. And in the verses that are to come, there is much that sounds at first glance sensual or erotic. But the events of the text aren't explicit, even though there's a desire that is definitely building between these two. They're holding fast to their integrity. They're able to confess their desires to the appropriate people and to themselves within their own private thoughts being recorded for us here on the pages of scripture, but they do not cross that line into sexual intimacy and fulfillment before the night of their marriage. Now, the first section really begins with the woman speaking. And she, in verse 12, says, Well, the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. And so what she means there in verse 12, by the king being on his couch, it's an image there. He's at home on his bed. He's sleeping at his house. And while he is, she's at her home And she apparently is having this daydream, dream in her sleep about him as she lies upon her bed. She's just there alone with her thoughts, thinking about him. And she's kind of head over heels in love with this man. She's becoming more convinced as time goes on. And the way that she describes it is beautiful. Nard was a valuable and rare and exotic ointment in that era. And for a woman to take that and to release it meant that she was releasing something of great value. And so she's saying, I'm releasing. There's this thing that's happening to me where I'm letting go and I'm ready to give my love to this man. Those of us, of course, familiar with the New Testament likely recognize Nard from the life of Jesus when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus's body with Nard in the house of Simon in preparation for his burial. It was a beautiful act of worship that caused no small controversy, especially in the mind of Judas Iscariot. But the whole concept of the giving away of nard or the releasing of nard is that when you release it, you cannot get it back. It's something that's very valuable that you make a decision to give away. And she is there lying on her bed saying, there is something very valuable to me that I, lying on my bed, just thinking about this man, I am ready to give myself to him. 
And I think that the pouring out of fragrant oil is a beautiful image of what it means to give your heart to someone. Because when you pour out your heart to someone, when you give your body to someone, when you share your soul with someone, you cannot retrieve those moments, those experiences back. And so she went into this guardedly, but now she's beginning to open her heart and is convinced now that she's ready to release herself to this man. This is one of the reasons why premarital sexual experiences are so dangerous to a relationship. When people engage each other sexually, physically, intimately before the wedding night, when they do that, they no longer are able to think clearly about who it is that they're dealing with. And so she is preparing herself. She's longing for that moment. And make no mistake, this is not just a sentimental desire. There is a bit of sensuous desire with this woman. She's longing for this man and waiting for the appropriate moment to express her physical desire for him. She goes on in verse 13 to say, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now, notice, first of all, the little pet name that she'll give to Solomon. She'll use it 27 times in this book when she speaks of him or to him. And it's the name, My Beloved. Just a beautiful little name. So they're growing in their intimacy, naming each other in that kind of way. And she says, he's like a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now, in that day, some women could afford the luxury of this little perfume pouch that would sort of hang from their neck like a necklace. And they would fill that pouch with fragrant objects like myrrh. You'd put that in there and there would be this aroma that surrounded this woman, kind of an ancient perfume that she was wearing. And so she's saying that, not that he's literally there between her breasts at this moment, oh, that will come in the Song of Solomon, but that to her, just the thoughts of him are fragrant. There's this beautiful thing that's happening. And to her, thoughts of him are like that beautiful, smelling, fragrant myrrh that would hang there in that satchel around her neck. And so what you're seeing here is that as time goes on in their relationship, he is growing sweeter and sweeter in her mind's eye. Now, this is interesting because so often what people will do when they come together and begin to investigate whether they should be married or not, so often what people will do is they'll enjoy those early days of infatuation. And then as the romance progresses and as conversations intensify and as you really get to know the other person to a much deeper level and degree, a lot of times the relationship will sort of go downhill. And the reason is because you're not a good match for each other. But sometimes what people will do is they'll think back to those first couple of weeks or month or so of real infatuation and the fun and all of that and just think to themselves, well, you know, we just got to stick with it because that's the potential. No, for her, in her relationship with Solomon, the joy of the thought of him 
only intensified over time. Listen, before you say, I do, you have an opportunity to walk away. You have an opportunity to say, no, this isn't the right fit for me. It would be better to remain in a single state devoted to the Lord, obedient to the Lord, than to be in a situation or to be in a marriage that is overly difficult. Now, if you're in an overly difficult marriage, you're to continue on in your walk with the Lord and to continue on in that marriage and bring honor and glory to him in that way. But before you're married, you have a level of freedom is what I'm trying to say. And for her, her desire over time intensified. So this is a a beautiful thing. And what you're seeing here is that her desire for him was a mutual thing. He expressed it to her and she is now expressing it to him. Notice the other beautiful compliment that she gives to Solomon in verse 14. She says, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is a beautiful or was a beautiful desert oasis in southern Israel. And so what she's saying is that to her, Solomon was like a desert oasis. You know, you go down there into southern Israel and it's a very dry climate, the Dead Sea down there and everything. But you get to En Gedi, you find these little streams and it can be a very refreshing thing. And so for her, she's saying, you know, in a dry and weary land, you are refreshing. His love was refreshing to her, not a tiring or draining relationship. And again, I think that's an important thing for especially young couples who are thinking about getting into marriage and are investigating a certain person. It's very important that you stop and consider and and wonder, is this edifying? Is this refreshing me? Is this person bringing life to me? Or Would I really describe this relationship in an opposite kind of way? Is this kind of a desert experience filled with dryness that I am in? You want there to be a refreshing state that comes as a result of your relationship. Now, in verse 15, Solomon speaks to the girl and he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, first of all, just the fact that Solomon responds to her so swiftly in this song, it tells us quite clearly that they are using their words very well in their relationship. And it's almost like they get into this little battle of complimenting one another. And we'll see that as we progress through this particular text, but they're using their words to edify and to build up one another. So often in a marriage, a couple will use their words to harm rather than to help. They'll use their words to bring pain and to declare little points and try to manipulate. Here, that's not the case for Solomon. He continues to bless his future bride. Notice as well that he says to her twice, you are beautiful. He'd already said it. He says it again twice. You're beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. It's a go-to line of Solomon's. I think it's just good to note repeated compliments are not a bad idea. He just continues that line of compliment for his bride. You're beautiful. 
But he gets very specific when he says in verse 15, your eyes are as doves. Now, again, his compliments are generally very appropriate for this season of their life. They're not yet married. He's not going to compliment the other features of her body, but he does compliment her neck and her face. And uh, here he compliments her eyes. He says, your eyes are doves. Now, when you look into literature from around that time and the rest of the Old Testament, it's clear that doves were noted for their cleanliness, their tranquility, their peace. And so some would say that a bride with eyes of a dove is a bride who has beautiful character, peaceful character, clean character. And so what Solomon is saying is, not only do I see your external beauty, but you're the whole package. I see that you are a person of inner integrity. And of course, a man of God should not overlook this, and a woman of God should not overlook this in her life. Peter, in writing to wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, said to the wives that they ought to be subject to their husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, without a word, without a word being spoken, they would be one by the conduct of their wives. When they see, Peter said, your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be merely external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter here outlines inner beauty. She has a respectful and pure conduct. She has imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, the hidden person of the heart, Peter writes. And Solomon looked at this woman and he realized that's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a woman who has taken her walk with God very seriously. I'm dealing with a woman of the word. I'm dealing with a woman of prayer. I'm dealing with a woman who's devoted to the Lord. And he saw that about her and he compliments her for it. Now, verse 16, it appears that the conversation shifts back to the woman. It is a song, so there are times where there's a little debate as to who is speaking, but I'm going to take this as the woman speaking in verse 16. It says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, Our rafters are pine. Notice that she confesses about him. She's saying, you're not only physically attractive to me, but she says, you're truly delightful. In other words, she saw him and she just thought, you, not only do you have great appearance, you also have an incredible personality. (laughs) Listen, It's important to have personality attraction. You can have someone that you are physically attracted to and spiritually attracted to. But it is important to as well have a attraction to their personality. You know, what are they like and how do they operate? What makes them tick? And often, I think many people have observed over time, 
that when it comes to personalities, opposites will attract. It's not a mandate from scripture by any stretch of the imagination, but it's often just a human observation. Now, here she's saying, I'm seeing your personality. It's more than just what she saw. It's what she experienced. This is a delight. Just knowing you, being in a relationship with you. They had fun together. They could laugh together. They had great camaraderie together. They had a friendship together. Just an incredible element to their lives. And I think that so often in marriage, one of the elements that is forgotten is the friendship. And to remember that ought to be cultivated, that that ought to be experienced. And then, of course, as children come along and then as children depart, friendship during the duration must be defended. Now, she also seems to speak about their home. Kind of at first glance, she says, our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. What what does that mean? It sounds like some pretty progressive interior design or decoration. But what she's doing here is she's saying, we're spending a lot of time outside. We don't spend a lot of time inside the house yet. We're not yet married. We haven't yet built a home. So we don't have a couch together. We don't have a house together. We don't have rafters. Our couch is green. Our house is cedar. Our rafters are pine. Now, I'm not oblivious. I understand that it's just as easy to sin outside as it is inside. But I think in one sense, it is probably easier to hold fast to your integrity while you're as a dating couple or courting couple by being outside in the light. That would suggest daytime a little bit more than nighttime. It would suggest outdoors a little bit more than indoors. It would suggest innocence because you're kind of reading things that remind us perhaps even of the Garden of Eden and the innocence that was there. But I think probably the best way to see this is we're seeing something that's in the light. They spent time cultivating their love in the light. And I think that it's true that love grows in a place of innocence. Love grows in the light. So many have fallen prey to, you know, spending time in inappropriate places without any accountability. Listen, walk in the light, be in the light. I think a young man or a woman, but a young man especially, a man who's leading a relationship towards marriage, he should lead well to avoid sexual temptation. Don't put the burden upon the woman. Take responsibility yourself. Say, no, we aren't going to spend time alone in your apartment. It's just not what we're going to do because it's an environment that leads us to a place of temptation. So just a beautiful thing there. She says, you know, we're spending all this time outside in the light. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, she talks about herself and she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, this is interesting because previously she was embarrassed about her looks earlier in chapter one. She was ashamed of her tan or her sunburn as a result of working out in the fields. And here, her perspective seems to have shifted a little bit. 
we would assume as a result of the compliments of Solomon, the perspective of Solomon. And so she says, now I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valley. Now, when she says that, I think it's important to understand that she really isn't boasting at all. These are words that are used for common flowers. So she's sort of admitting like, I I realize that this man sees me as beautiful, but there's no pride. There's no arrogance. She just simply has a healthy self view about herself. I think in large part due to the love that is coming from Solomon. And so she confesses this about herself. Solomon, however, responds and says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. So he responds and he plays off of her words. He takes it a little further and he says, yeah, that's right. You're just a flower. You're the only flower among a bunch of brambles. He's just giving her life with his words. He is elevating her. And again, we're seeing this couple just outdoing one another with praise for one another. And so, of course, questioning our own hearts and asking the question, what kind of words am I using with my spouse if I'm a married person? And so the life imparting dialogue that's coming from Solomon to his bride. Now, she says in verse three, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow And his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she keeps the compliments rolling. She has another little image here. They are full of imagery. It's very poetic. It's a song. It's just magnificent. But the way she describes him is as an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Now, this would be, in one sense, surprising. You know, like just an element of surprise saying, Solomon, you totally caught me off guard. I was just kind of cruising through life and then boom, there you were. And, you know, everyone else is just one way, but you, oh, there's just something different about you. Now, she says apple tree, which is often used, the word apple often used as a generic word for fruit. And so in one sense, we could see this as a way for her to communicate your love to me is so health giving. It's so nutritious. It's so satisfying. There's just something wonderful about what is coming my direction from you. And then she goes on to say, not only am I satisfied, you know, some people thought, In that era, well, if you have a fruit tree, you're not going to get any shade. Or if you have a tree that gives shade, you're not going to get any fruit. She says, I got both. I got the fruit and I got the shade. I just got to delight and sit in his shadow. What does this say? I think this speaks of safety, safety, refuge. She felt protected by this man. She felt defended by this man. Remember, for her, shade is a very big deal. Her mother's sons had forced her to work out in the field. This is a very big deal to this woman. And so she's saying of him, you know, around you, I don't feel in danger. I don't feel nervous. I don't feel frightened. I feel 
comfortable. I feel protected. I feel at ease. I feel safe around you. And I think it's so important that a woman especially would feel safe around the man that she's going to spend the rest of her life with. Be sure to watch his life. Observe his life before marriage. Don't be duped into a marriage with a brutal man. Look for the signs that would show you that he is such. She observes him and says, no, there's safety to you. And then she says, his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, this indicates that they're getting to know each other. Just the more I know about you, the more satisfied I am. His fruit was sweet to my taste. And as I mentioned already, the moment a couple engages sexually before marriage, their knowledge of one another really cannot deepen. So take your time to learn about one another. And by all means, if you are married, continue to take time to learn about one another. She says in verse 4, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. You know, she is announcing something here that's pretty fascinating. There's kind of a military concept about it. The military banners that would hang would be easily seen by the troops as they marched. And what she's announcing is, look, when we go to dinner, it's obvious to everyone He just lets it all be visible that his love is real. His banner over me was love. He wasn't saying that he loved me personally and then publicly saying that I'm just his friend or something like that. No, he was living a life. This was visible love. Listen, don't buy it for a moment when a man or a woman says and confesses their undying love for you. Love isn't just an emotion. Love is a decision. It needs to be seen. It needs to be visible. It needs to be obvious. The love of God is what compelled the cross. And so there's action that's connected. And so she is saying, I'm watching this action all over the place. He's not just saying that he loves me, but he's living the life. Just a beautiful thing. Here at verse 5, she's so overwhelmed that she says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. At this point, the woman is faint with love. She is getting knocked out by the potential of this relationship with Solomon. And she needs some strengthening. She needs some food. She needs some raisins. She needs some apples. Some people even think that that fruit has a little bit of like a sensual overtone attached to it, that she's acknowledging a growing sexual desire for this man. And I think at this point, she's looking at her friends like, you got to help me out. I am so fallen for this man it's not our wedding day yet you got to keep a girl in check and again this desire is not negative this is a good 
desire. Sometimes a young person will say, oh, I just wish God would take that desire away from me. And the reality is, no, you don't. You, you don't want God to take the sexual drive and desire away from you, but you want to steward it well. And it seems to me as if this woman is turning now to her friends and saying, you got to help me out. I'm even wishing and longing for his embrace that he would hold me. You got to be with me. You got to hold me accountable you got to keep me in the light. She pleads with them in verse 7 as we close our study today and says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She finds an animal in nature, the gazelles, the does of the field, very easily startled you know, and can easily be agitated. She's kind of saying like, look, that's a little bit what love is like. You got to be so careful around it because you do not want to stir it up or awaken it until it pleases. It is a powerful thing. Unfortunately, so many people, sometimes even without their own will being involved, are awakened sexually way before the time pornography, early dating, back into, you know, middle school, junior high years, overly romantic proms and prom nights and lack of parental involvement and the grotesque stuff that's accessible on the internet, the abuse sexually of children. So many of these things cause a sexual experience to happen before the proper time. She's saying, don't agitate that until it pleases. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You know, the desire for sexual touch is like a fire. You've got to keep it going with the proper boundaries and appropriate fuel. And uh, the second it goes outside of those boundaries, it's in a dangerous place for it is a powerful thing. And so we go to God's word for the boundaries to live lives that are circumspect and honoring him. But the growth, the surging nature of the love of these two, I hope that this encourages your own heart. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.